All right, well, good morning again. I think uh, it looks like Janica um, has the notes. Thank you so much, Janica. Sorry about that. Um, so yeah, if someone could pass those out, thank you, Will and Sabrina. Welcome, everyone. We're on our second week of looking at the role of the king in the Old Testament. We're being set up in the next couple weeks. I think Pastor Desmond's going to teach on how Christ ultimately fulfills the office of king on our behalf. And this, this is so that we can benefit as his people from his victorious reign. And we'll even see how we are called to reflect the image of God by ruling under and on behalf of him. So to highlight a little bit of what we talked about last week, we're talking about the threefold office of Christ because among other things, we hope that this is gonna help us see how all of scripture points to Christ. We pray that this will strengthen our assurance of salvation and help us see how comprehensive our salvation is in Christ. And then even we will, from this study of the threefold office, we hope to glean some some important principles on how we as the church are to live in this world and image God through acting in prophetic, priestly, and kingly ways in various capacities. So, as as always, let's uh, start out with the catechism. So we're we're gonna skip it. We're gonna skip uh, a few of them though because I want to get through everything. Um, all right. So let's let's uh, just start with uh, question twenty five on your notes. I'm gonna read the question and y'all can can read the answer. Question twenty five. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. I love that picture of him subduing us to himself because that's, that's what we all need. Apart from that, our hearts are unruly. We will be running away from him. Yet as, as our king, he subdues us to himself. Praise God for that. Now, we're just going to do question 67 of the Children's Catechism. Christian. Why do you need Christ as a king? I need Christ as a king because I am weak and helpless. Amen. So, I'm going to review, hopefully really quickly, last week. Again, we're talking about the role of the king in the Old Testament. We started our discussion in Genesis 1 because that's where we see the role of dominion given to all mankind. And this is what lays the foundation for kingship in redemptive history. So the foundation for this office is... Hey, buddy. So the foundation for the office of king that Christ fulfills is given in the very first chapter of the Bible. Of course, Adam and Eve failed to obey God. They failed to extend his rule on the earth and and even keep his the the most clear command to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that 
inaugurated the fall, the fall of the world into sin and curse. And yet, amidst, amidst this, we see God's grace. We see God's mercy. In verse 15 of chapter 3, as all the curses are being pronounced, God says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Does anyone remember what Kyle said last week about one aspect of that that, should, that highlights God's grace? Does anyone remember who was here? What he said that I thought was so helpful is, th- think about what just happened. Adam and Eve fell in the garden. They're, um, you know, they, they ate of the fruit of the tree, meaning they died spiritually. Death has entered the world. They're going to die physically. And so now all of humanity is under the bondage of sin, right? And so what, what's, what should strike us is that now all of a sudden God's saying, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So there's going to be enmity. There's going to be conflict between the offspring of the devil, basically all all those who are like unbelievers, and offspring of the woman, um, God's people. And so it's not like necessarily said explicitly, but implicitly what we're seeing is that God is God out of fallen humanity is going to be saving a people for himself because as things are there there would be no offspring of woman in this way that would be at war with the serpent because we've all we all have like adam and eve became like fell into being offspring of the serpents in their sin and yet god is is uh graciously saving people to himself and that is implicit in those words does that make sense kyle explained it a lot better than i am right now does that follow Okay, praise God. It's so, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So anyway, and then of course, there's going to be an offspring of the woman, perhaps a, even a kingly offspring who will be so mighty that he will actually do battle with the serpent and will strike a death blow, um, bruise the head, crush the head, and he will suffer some sort of blow Um, But it's going to be minor, the heel. And so, again, we see the victory, the ultimate reversal of the curse pointed to, even in amidst the the curses uh, that came along with Adam and Eve's sin. So, we also see that there's going to be kings coming from Abraham. Um, There's going to be a ruler coming from Judah, a star out of Jacob. We talked a little bit last week about the difference between kings in Israel and kings, other ancient kings. Does anyone remember what some of the differences were to be between Israel's king and pagan kings around that same time? We kind of talked about how they were worshipped as a god. Yeah. And how the, um, the Israelite kings were to make a copy of the law for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those two. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so huge difference. We've got the, the pagan kings are thought of as, at the very least, like pseudo-divine. Like it's a blurry line. They're, they, they were certainly above the rest of their people. And yet in Deuteronomy 17, it says that your king shall not set his heart above his brothers. And like Sabrina said, 
He's to have a copy of the law. The Levites are to check and make sure that copy of the law is correct. And he's to read in it every day that he may learn to fear the Lord and keep his commands. And so the, yeah, go ahead, Anna. Oh, no. oh sorry. Well, I was just saying like the main thing being that he's under the, God's authority and under the authority of God's word. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, really good. And we're going to see how that plays out um, in this lesson. So, yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about judges. Uh, it's at the bottom of the front of your note sheet. Um, kingship is a theme, I would argue, in the book of Judges. And I think we could even see Judges as functioning as sort of like an apologetic for the Davidic kingship. So in Judges, we're seeing that, like Adam, Israel was meant to like rule uh, and image God as his covenant people. They were to be faithful, but they were failing miserably. They did not uh, completely defeat all the peoples in the land and, and obey God's word. He told, he, he told them like, like he told them to. And so they're just, they're in a mess. And Judges is just a downward spiral of more and more sin. And the end is just crazy. There's complete moral chaos. I wanted to highlight real quick Judges 8. Um, you can go ahead and turn to Judges 8. And could someone please read verse 22 and 23 of Judges 8? We're going to spend a little bit of time around here uh, in this passage. So, yeah, once uh, who could read Judges 8, 22, read and 23? Thank you, Des. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Thank you. What do you guys think of Gideon's response? What's up? Very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really humble about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're asking for a dynasty. He's saying, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. And Gideon's like, no. Uh, like, who owns this data? Right. Yeah. Saying, oh, no, I'll give up power. I'll give up. Yeah. 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 It looks good. But, unfortunately, we read on and we see that something happened. Either he was, either his words were extremely dishonest or a little bit of time went on and everything changed. Because you go on to read, I'll summarize, but in verses 24 to 31, um, Gideon, Gideon asks for everyone to give him some of their spoil. He, he ends up getting like 45 pounds of gold out of this and creates an, an ephod. An ephod? How do you say it, Des? You got it. Ephod? Okay. So he creates this thing, and it says in verse uh, 27 that all, all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. And so he's asking for spoils from all the people, and this makes me think of Deuteronomy 17 where it warned against a king uh, lifting his heart above his brothers. And so that's bad. Um, so he says, he says, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And then the next verse is he's asking like, okay, I, I need some of the spoils from all of you. That is him acting as a king, no matter what he said. And so here's the most uh, revealing, telling thing though about Gideon. 
So verse 30 says, Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. This is striking because Abimelech in Hebrew means, my father is the king. So we have him saying, no, not going to be the king, but then later he names his son Abimelech, my father is the king. So something's going wrong. Um, he also noticed that he acquired many wives and he acquired wealth. And these are two out of the three things that were forbidden to the Israelite king in Deuteronomy 17. So we should be thinking, oh my gosh, get it. Like, we should not be having great thoughts about Gideon's uh, leadership right now. So anyway, in Judges, morality, like I said, it's breaking down. It's moral chaos. A refrain in Judges throughout, um, a few times throughout is that in those days there was no king in Israel. It says that both uh, at the beginning of chapter 18 and chapter 19. Another common refrain is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So I think that there's a connection here. And this is, this is how it's functioning as perhaps as an apologetic for uh, the godly Davidic king. It's saying there's a connection between there not being a king who's leading the people in faithfulness and everyone just doing what's right in their own eyes. The king was to give spiritual leadership to God's people. And so ultimately Judges is not so much about the external threat of the Canaanites that they failed to cast out of the land it is much more about the internal threat of the disobedience of god's people the internal threat of their wayward hearts and a godly king could help in that way so now i think we are on the back page israel's request for a king so the deteriorating condition of society continues into the book of Samuel. Samuel opens with, um, in chapter 3, we hear that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. That's not a good sign. The priesthood was corrupt. The sons of Eli, it says that they did not know the Lord and they were abusing their position as priests. So they would steal food. Um, they did not listen to the rebuke of their father. And judgment was pronounced against Eli and his house. So now Samuel comes in as the answer to two things. One, uh, Samuel's mom was physically barren. And two, we should see from both Judges and the beginning of 1 Samuel that Israel is spiritually barren. And so Samuel comes in to take care of both. Obviously, he answers the problem of his, his of Hannah's barrenness, and he is the beginning of God's answer to Israel's spiritual barrenness at this time. So Samuel is a godly leader. He does bring a measure of religious stability and fruitfulness. He grows up serving in the tabernacle in the presence of the Lord. Uh, in verse 26 of 1 Samuel 2, it says that he grew in favor with the Lord and the people. Does that remind you of any, anything else that's said? Anyone have an idea? Jesus. Yeah, that's right. In Luke's gospel, it says the same thing about Jesus' childhood. So that's a, that, there's a connection there. And so Samuel grew. Uh, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 3.19. 1 Samuel 3.19 says, 
and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And let none of his words fall to the ground. What do you think this means? Have your words ever fallen to the ground? <laughs> everything, well, everything he said, um, at least according to God's word, went into action, and he was a man of integrity. Yeah. He said, yeah. 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 Amen. I, th- I think you're exactly right. It's it's a it's a cool way to basically just say that all that he says comes true. He doesn't break his promises. And First Samuel nine six says this explicitly. This is significant because remember when we talked about Deuteronomy eighteen, the test of a true prophet is that all that they say will come to pass. And so, per Deuteronomy eighteen. This is another way of saying Samuel was a true prophet of the Lord. There were no falling words, meaning there were no broken promises. There were no failed prophecies. What he said was truly the word of the Lord. So looking at 1 Samuel 3.19, why? Why do none of his words fall to the ground according to this verse? Yeah, that's right. The Lord was with him. That's the difference maker. The Lord was with him. And notice it's not that Samuel didn't let his words fall to the ground. It says the Lord was with him and let none of his words. It was the Lord who let none of his words fall to the ground. So now go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. At the beginning of chapter 8, we see that Samuel's sons are not walking in the way of the Lord. They are actually taking bribes and perverting justice. So now, could someone read verses 4 through 7 of chapter 8 nice and loud? Who could read verses 4 through 7 nice and loud so that the recording picks it up? Sure. Thank you, Will. Uh, and then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Mm, thank you. When you read that, I thought, that's, that's blunt. They're just like, behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Thank you, Will. So why does God say that they have rejected him as king? Isn't it positive that they wanted a king? At least in part, it seems they wanted a king because Samuel's sons were not acting faithfully. So why does God say they have rejected him as king, do you think? Is there any hints in this passage that we just read? What was the question? Just why Why does God say, so in, uh, um, in verse 7, the Lord says, they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Why, why do you think God is saying that? Um, because at least so far it seems like, hey, I mean, they should be discontent with Samuel's sons. Oh, I have an extra one too. Sorry. 
Yeah, God was supposed to be their king, and although Deuteronomy 17 does provide for there to be a king in Israel, so it's, I don't think it's that them having a king was inherently bad, but I think that their motives here were certainly wrong. It says in verse 5, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Emphasis on like all the nations. I think they were, their hearts were strained and that they just wanted to be, rather than being God's distinct people, they just wanted to have like the power and prominence that could maybe come with a, a mighty king, just like all the surrounding nations who did not have the Lord God as their warrior, as their God. And so, so that is, that is, I think, the, the main issue. Um, it, they did not have the right motives in asking for a king. And we see this even more clearly in verse 20. They also desire a king who will go before them and fight their battles. So they weren't asking for a human king to help them walk in the ways of their ultimate king. They were asking for a human king um, because they ultimately did not trust the Lord. So God gives the divine analysis of their hearts in verse 7, and he says it's because they've rejected me as their king. So... There were, there were two ways, uh, just to summarize, two ways that their request was misguided. One, they wanted to be like the other nations instead of being a distinct nation, and we see that in verse 5. They wanted power and political influence from a king, and that's what they were prizing instead of being holy and set apart as God's people. And then two, it, the problem was they literally in, in, a, in verse 20, um, could someone read verse 20 since First uh, Samuel 8 real quick? Yeah, that is really sad. Uh, um, I mean, it's, it's reflective of how all of our hearts are, um, how, how easily we, we fail to, to trust the Lord. And it's really sad because God had been acting on their behalf and had already proven himself, so to speak, time and time again. And so they're rejecting God as their king and protector in this, but he had of course given them no reason to that shows the folly of sin and so just even the chapter before in first samuel 7 this this is what directly precedes their request for a king in the flow of first samuel and what directly precedes it is the lord decimates the philistines on behalf of his people who were terrified and desperate it says in in verse 10 the lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. I've also heard some people pronounce Philistines Philistines, which makes them sound smart. But the Philistines are Philistines. So God defeated them. Um, it was, you know, supernatural, um, a supernatural defeat of the enemy of his people. And so right after that, though, they're saying we need a king to go out for us in battle. Here's the other thing. Samuel warns the Israelites what a king will demand by showing how that king is going to take from them. So 
verses 11 through 17 of chapter 8, he's just saying the king, to summarize those verses, it's just the king's going to take and take and take from you. And how tragic that the people's response to that in verses 19 and 22 is just they're firm in their resolve to have a king. It's like, no, we still want that king. We still want that human king, even even though you're telling me that it's not going to go well for us. He's just going to take and take and take. And so, again, we, we should pause here and think about the insanity of our own sin. We, in our foolishness, we, we can re- functionally replace God in our lives. Um, it could be we're functionally replacing him with control, comfort, money, reputation, pleasure. Fill in the blank with anything, but... Let us be reminded that these idols, they just take and take and take. They never can give what in our sin we think they can, the, the peace or the contentment or the, the well-being that we would hope. They just take and take and take, and in the end, we're left with nothing but to confess to God that only he is worthy, only he can satisfy. And so... Remember, the, the Israelites, let, let's remember the context of, of their request. It was in the very context of God already showing himself faithful. They were sinning against grace in that way. So, now God chooses Saul as king, and early on we already have hints that Saul is going to leave much to be desired in terms of a godly king. So, first of all, Saul is from the city of Gabeah and of the tribe of Benjamin. This is, I, I don't expect anyone to necessarily know this because we didn't spend much time in Judges, but does anyone, does anyone know why that's significant in light of the end of Judges? Why is it significant that he is from the city of Gabeah and of the tribe of Benjamin? Okay, no worries. It's because, I mean... If we had time to read chapters 19 and 20, we would see Gibeah and Benjamin just just destroyed in the sense of, like, that's where a lot of the moral chaos and sin is emanating from. And so I think that, you know, given especially that Samuel immediately follows Judges, in, in the Hebrew Bible at least, Ruth is in between in our Bibles, but still, it's, it's basically in, in the flow of Israelite history— um, Samuel's right after. And so I think that the Israelites would have warning, uh, like flashing lights going off in their heads, seeing like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. Saul is from Gibeah and of Benjamin. This is, this uh, seems like it might not be going in a great direction. So they should have a bad taste in their mouth is basically what I'm trying to say. And also interestingly enough, Richard Belcher, I don't, I don't know if, if this is reading into it too much, but Saul is also described as tall, and that is often a description of Israel's enemies. So there could be a connection there, but I think at the very least, what his height, it also says he was basically like the most handsome in the land. Um, I forget the exact words, but I think these at least point to two things, which is, again, the Israelites were not looking for someone who was faithful to the Lord and his word. They were looking for simply a man like the other nations, a king like an impressive Outwardly, outwardly impressive, impressive from a worldly point of view, but not from necessarily from the Lord's point of view. So 
things seem to be going in a bad direction, but let's see how Saul does. Unfortunately, God ends up rejecting Saul as the king of Israel because he is unwilling to submit to the word of God. Uh, go, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 13. Basically, Saul, Saul becomes impatient before battle. Uh, Samuel was to arrive and offer a sacrifice um, on behalf of the people of God before they entered into battle. And basically, he's late. And so Saul takes it upon himself to offer the sacrifice, even though he's not a priest. He's not supposed to. Um, so could someone please read 1 Samuel 13, 11 through 12? Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt salt offering. Yeah, thank you. So what are, what are Saul's excuses? For his disobedience? Convenience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, basically. It's like, hey, the people... First off, Samuel, you weren't here. And the people were scattering. So I, I was... I, you know, I need to get... Uh, seek the blessing of the Lord. I have not sought the favor of the Lord. I want to pause here for a second because this is Paul's... Pragmat... Or Saul... <laughs> Keep getting Saul and Paul confused. I have Paul in my notes. But Saul, this is Saul's pragmatism. From a human perspective, I think that the excuses that Pastor Marty just read, they, they might kind of sound compelling. It's like, well, hey, he was trying to do the right thing. Like, he's trying to seek the favor of the Lord. And it, it kind of makes sense. And so I think we need to highlight this because the problem is that his response showed a lack of seriousness about God's word. There, God doesn't just, often God doesn't just tell us what to do, but he tells us how to do it. And so achieving, seeking to achieve the right ends in unrighteous ways is not okay. And, and we see that right here. I think it's also, it's also really cool to contrast this with Jonathan's spirit of faith in chapter 14. We don't have time to read the whole story, but... But Saul, Saul's lack of faith is also shown in how he thought he had to take this pragmatic solution. Because he should have been like, hey, Samuel's not here. That's not good. But I know that I can't transgress God's word. I know that I can't step out of line and do something that only has been given to the priest to do. And I trust that God will deliver. I don't have to, like, try to force something to, like, try to get God's blessing. God's going to deliver. It's out of my hands, but I know he'll deliver. That should have been his posture. And we see that even in the very next chapter with, with Jonathan, Saul's son. He, he goes up. I'll, I'm just going to read verse 6. But um, Jonathan says to the, his armor bearer, they're, they're about to fight against some of the Philistines. And he says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder 
the Lord from saving by many or by few. So Jonathan, on the other hand, contrast that with Saul. It's just him and his armor bearer. And he's like, hey, like God can save by many or by few. God could save by none if he wanted. Let's see what God's going to do. It, it was just just such faith in the Lord to, to deliver for, um, on behalf of his people. And so I wanted to point that out. And, and again, th- let's think about that. Let, let that be a takeaway. Saul did not take God's word seriously. He may have had okay ends in mind in that he wanted to seek, uh, seek the favor of the Lord. But it was not lawful means used to achieve those ends. And I think we can think about reflection on that. I think we can see that that applies to a lot of things in the church today and in our lives today. So, all right. Anyway, all this ends in that Saul has to, or Samuel has to confront Saul with his disobedience. And Saul is told that his kingdom will not continue. Chapter 15, 26 says, because Saul has rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected him as king. So now God seeks a man after his own heart to be prince over his people Israel, according to 1 Samuel 13. A a man after God's own heart. I think that this is an interesting phrase to think about because the way I think I usually take it may not necessarily be what it means. I think it may more mean be emphasizing God's freedom to choose according to his own criteria rather than speaking about the character of the king. So in other words, a man after God's own heart means a man that God chooses more than it means a man who loves what God loves. Maybe both senses are in mind, um, but we're, we're thinking about it. It may not quite mean what we normally think of it as meaning. The main emphasis, though, is that it is a man of God's choosing. And it, back in Deuteronomy 17, again, we see another connection. We all sorts of connections to Deuteronomy 17, but Deuteronomy 17 emphasized that when you're in the land and you set a king over you, it must be a king who the Lord chooses. So that is key. David had many flaws, of course. We, we think of Bathsheba and Uriah, but he was God's choice and he was sincere in his repentance by God's grace. His heart was committed to God. So there were devastating consequences for his sin, for him and his family. Um, but yet, uh, ultimately, he, he did uh, exhibit repentance and, and faithfulness. So we're going to talk a little bit about God's covenant with David. God made promises to David and his descendants. It, the covenant changed the king's relationship to God. Oh, we got one more notes page. Um, So the Davidic covenant changed, I think, heightened the relationship between the king and God. We're going to talk about that more later. Um, But to summarize, it bound together David's rule or the Davidic king's rule with God's rule. So let's think about the terms of the covenant. One, the Davidic covenant, and the terms of the covenant is a section on your notes, but one, the Davidic covenant promises include the establishment of an eternal kingdom through one of David's offspring. He's also going to have a descendant who will build a house for the Lord. And so, you know, we're going to see that Solomon fulfilled this in a partial way in building the temple. But as, as I think Desmond, not to steal Desmond's thunder too much, but I just want to point out real quick that 
for Jesus, we should be thinking of the church because we are the house that Christ is building for the Father, according to Ephesians 2. And so, so already, um, we should, obviously, we've read the New Testament, unlike the people who first heard Samuel. And so already, we should be thinking, okay, wow, like, how does, how does Christ fulfill this, ultimately uh, fulfill this covenant? Um, so anyway, he's going to have a descendant who builds a house for the Lord. There's going to be a father-son relationship established between God and the king. And the outcome of the covenant is David's house, kingdom, and throne will be established forever. Could someone please, let's turn to 2 Samuel now, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I'm, I'm like Kyle right now. I'm trying to talk really fast because I want to get through as much as possible. So I'm pulling a Kyle. Um, so 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. This is God's covenant with David. And we're going to talk about how this covenant, like many in Scripture, has both conditional and unconditional elements. So have that in mind. Who could read 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16 for me? Nice and loud. Thank you. Thank you, Kareem. Amen. So what is the conditional element in this covenant? Perhaps in building of his house. Conditional, you're saying? Yeah, could you elaborate a little bit, Andy? Yeah. So you're saying that's conditional upon upon Yeah, 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 I think, I think, uh, well, yeah, I mean, David wasn't allowed to build the Lord's house, and that, that's an interesting thing to think about, because David wanted that, but God's like, no, uh, there's too much blood on your hands, because you've, you've been destroying the enemies of, of your people, and so he says, you want to go back, buddy? So he says that, uh, David's gonna have a son do it, um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think, um, I think that in my mind, the conditional element that I saw was when in verse 14, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man. And so that that's a conditional element um, 
the king from David's line, he's got to live in obedience. If he doesn't, he, he will experience God's discipline. And, man, think about the discipline that was experienced in the exile. Like, ultimately, Israel and Judah both fell. They were decimated. They were captives to, to the, the, you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. They were destroyed at the hands of the world's powers at the time. And I think that points to the conditional elements of this covenant. Um, the kings, the Davidic kings, were not faithful, and it resulted in um, judgment. Were you going to say something, Will? Or? Yeah. Um, well, I just I have a question. Um, yeah. I don't know if I'm reading it right or wrong. Um, maybe the covenant Yeah, yeah, that's really good, bro. Are you reading my notes, Will? I'm just kidding. But no, that's really good. Yeah, because yeah, the you you uh, kind of stole my thunder. I'll, I'll forgive you though, bro. But uh, you know that that was what I wanted to ask next. Is you know what is the unconditional element in this covenant? And I think Will Will said it really nicely um, because there may be something of a conditional element, but ultimately it is un, as as far as like that God will never take away His steadfast love. From the king, he will he will ultimately not reject him and his descendants as he did with Saul. It literally says that um, in verse fifteen. But um, he promises an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne that will be fulfilled, like Will said. Um, so ultimately, to paraphrase, like Will, no amount of human disobedience is gonna be able to hinder the fulfillment of God's promises to David. God's promise of that eternal reign. So praise God for, for the unconditional element because if it was just conditional, we would be lost. So I want to spend a little bit of time just looking at David's response because I think there's like a golden nugget hidden here. Could someone – actually, I'll just read. I'm, I'm going to read 18 and 19. King David's response to the covenant is, King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. I want to highlight the last part of verse 19. This is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Hebrew scholar Mark Futado actually argues that this verse is the theme verse of all of Samuel, both 1st and 2nd Samuel. He says a few things. He says, one, this refers to the covenant of David. So the covenant of David is instruction for mankind. Two, the in instruction here is translated from Torah. So it could also be translated as law. Um, this is law. This covenant is law. He says it's it's meaning that the Davidic covenant, because it's, it's an unconditional God-promised covenant, this has become law. It is divinely established and ordained. It's guaranteed to be fulfilled. And to what end is it guaranteed to be fulfilled? Well, it goes on to say it is law for mankind. 
for humanity. And so he argues that the for here is describing who benefits from this law. So it's, it, it should be thought of as saying for the benefit of humanity. This, the covenant of David, is law for the benefit of humanity. And I think that he's onto something, and I think that this is just yet another pointer. We see a lot in even the Old Testament, but another pointer that ultimately God is, he, he has in mind his promises to bless all the nations through the offspring of Abraham. This was promised way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, but... Um, Abraham, David, Israel, God's people are ultimately a means to the end that all nations would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. So I think that even here we see God's gracious plan of salvation highlighted. He's going to save a people from himself, and it's going to be a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So let's talk about Solomon. Solomon is the initial fulfillment of the promises in the Davidic covenant because, for one, he builds the first temple. Solomon at least starts out well. His reign starts out with a lot of peace and security. It's an ideal reign in many ways. We see a lot of God's promises at least being partially fulfilled or temporarily fulfilled in Solomon's kingdom. So, one... 1 Kings 4.20 says that the people were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That was an Abrahamic promise. Two, we see Israel inhabiting the land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants. And three, we see that the kingdom is blessed with peace and prosperity. The nations, there was so much prosperity that the nations were coming to see they were like, wow, Solomon, this is amazing. Um, and they saw the prosperity of God's people. So that connects with how early on Solomon's kingdom was fulfilling the ideal of Israel's mission. Because Israel at this point was living in the land that God had given her. Um, and God was pouring out his blessings as, as they walked in his ways. And people were coming to Jerusalem to give glory and honor to God, seeing what he had done for his people. Um, Solomon, in his prayer of, dedica of dedication, says, um, Here in heaven, he's, he's praying to the Lord that when the foreigner comes to Israel and prays toward the temple to the Lord, he says, Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So they are fulfilling their mission at this point. Queen of Sheba comes and offers praise to the Lord for his achievements it, through Solomon. Um, it says in verse 24 that the whole world sought an audience with Solomon and that other nations and kings brought their wealth to Jerusalem. So, unfortunately, there were hints of trouble, and this culminates in 1 Kings 10 and 11. You can go ahead and turn there. I can't remember if we're going to read any together, but turn there just in case. Um, so 1 Kings 10 and 11, 
Solomon's kingdom is going to decline. And again, Deuteronomy 17. Yet again, Deuteronomy 17 plays a key role here because we see the decline is connected to the three warnings of Deuteronomy 17. Solomon accumulated wealth for himself. He accumulated horses. He built up a huge army, betraying a lack of faith in the Lord. And he accumulated wives, betraying a lack, of the faith, a lack of faith in the Lord because that was a way to gain political alliances. And also, of course, uh, you know, violating uh, Genesis 2, the marriage covenant. And, and that is something that Deuteronomy 17 specifically warns against. So he's zero for three. And 1 Kings 11, 1 to 8 shows how his intermarriage with foreign women of course, as God had warned, led to idolatry. His heart was turned away from the Lord as all his wives were worshiping their pagan idols, and he also worshiped foreign gods along with them eventually. So God ultimately judges Solomon. The kingdom of Israel is split between Israel and Judah. And ultimately... So, so yeah, God did save one tribe for the line of David. The line of David continues to rule in Judah, but the other 10 tribes are, are not even under the Davidic king. That's terrible. That's, that is God's judgment right there. And yet it all ends, it all culminates in the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians in 722 BC and the fall of the southern kingdom, Judah, to the Babylonians in 587 BC. So God was, I mean, I think we should even realize that God had incredible patience. It's not like they fell away from him and worshiped idols and just like that, they were judged. God was patient. They had abundant warnings from the prophets. There were even a couple good kings sprinkled in like Hezekiah and Josiah. Uh, good kings of Judah who did seek to follow the Lord and bring Israel back, but it wasn't enough. And of course, remember, the kings, they bore a lot of responsibility for the waywardness of the people. The kings were to lead in the worship of God. And so when the people were going their own way, that was a direct reflection on the failure of the king. And all this should be in both the original audience and for us today, it should be stirring in our hearts the desire for a king that's not gonna, that's actually gonna be faithful, that's actually gonna be able to change things, that's actually gonna be able to deal with the root problems of sin in the heart and uh, sin in the world and, and all these things. So when the kingdoms fall, it's like, what has become of God's promises? It was made clear to them that God's promises had not failed. Rather, they were being disciplined. But I'm sure that the temptation was still there to be like, well, is God really going to fulfill his promises to David? Because at this point, there's no ruler sitting in Israel, no Davidic ruler sitting in Israel. We've been scattered. Oh, my goodness. We're almost out of time, guys. I'm almost done, though. So anyway... The last thing I want to highlight is the promise of a coming king. 
the promise of a coming king is heightened. I think that we, we should be already realizing that it's not going to be, it can't merely be a human king. Because for one, the eternal reign, you know, what human can live forever, but he's going to rule over Israel and the nations forever. And so Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, let's close with this. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. And could I have someone read um, those verses? Yeah. This is behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will deal will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Mm. Amen. So we see a theme that's really summarized well here the verses that des just read they come in the context of god rebuking the shepherds and leaders of israel who have neglected the people they've destroyed the people i think the word destroyed is literally used like you've destroyed this people that's how that's how serious their failure in leadership is and the effect that it had on the people and yet he says the days are coming when i will raise up for david so for david from david a davidic descendant a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely, execute justice. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. So Judah and Israel are going to be reunited under this coming king. And the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So in the Old Testament, as God, as the leaders of God's people are failing they're abusing God's people, using God's people. God's people are just like going after idols. God is still promising the coming Davidic descendant who will reign eternally for the good of Israel, for the good of the nations. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see exactly how that gets, that gets shown clearly in God's word. Because this is a thread we're going to see all throughout God's word. And we're going to see how Jesus fulfills that perfectly. So... Any concluding thoughts or questions before I dismiss us? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. May you ready our hearts as we go to, to worship you together. And may you uh, speak through your preached and read word and grow us, help us to, to hear with humility and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you guys. You're dismissed.